It takes so much time, blood, sweat, and tears to produce the oysters that we enjoy and often take for granted. It takes four to five years to grow one, and then four minutes to shuck a plate, and then four seconds to eat an oyster. What is that all for? Hello, everybody. This is Dave Query. Welcome to another episode of Community Table, a podcast where we talk about all kinds of interesting people doing all kinds of interesting things. Brought to you by your friends at the Big Red F Restaurant Group. In today's episode, executive chef of Jack's Fish House, Sheila Lucero, dives into the world of oysters. This is something she's very knowledgeable and so very passionate about. We're celebrating our 30th anniversary at Jack's Fish House this year, and Sheila has been with us for 26 of them. In her current role as executive chef of Jack's Fish House, Sheila is responsible for Jack's being Colorado's first certified restaurant partner of Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, and is also on their Blue Ribbon Task Force. Through Sheila, Jack's also participated in the James Beard Smart Catch Program, a leading force for restaurants sourcing seafood sustainably. We really hope you find this conversation fascinating, educational, and it makes you want to eat lots of oysters. My name is Sheila Lucero. I'm the executive chef at Jack's Fish House, and we have five locations in Colorado. We've been sourcing and shucking oysters going on 30 years, and today we have three amazing oyster lovers, so we're just going to have an oyster conversation. Quick introductions here. We have Patrick Oliver, the farm director from Rappahannock River Oysters in Topping, Virginia. He's been growing our proprietary oyster, the Cracker Jacks, for years. Patrick, I don't know if you know this story, but Travis and Ryan Croxton, the cousins that have Rappahannock River Oyster Farm, years ago came to Colorado and pulled up outside of the front of our restaurant, jumped out of their car, and I happened to be outside taking the trash out, and they asked for Chef Sheila. And I looked at him, and I was like, well, I'm Sheila. Hey, well, we're Travis and Ryan Croxton. We have an oyster farm in Virginia. We, uh, we have some oysters in the back of our car here in the trunk. Would you like to try them? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, the right answer. (laughs) Anyway, we got a good laugh out of that. We talked a little bit longer, and then they brought in their, their delicious oysters, and we've been great partners and friends ever since. We also have Weatherly Bates. She's an oyster farmer from Halibut Cove, Alaska. She not only grows delicious Glacier Point oysters, one of my faves, her and her husband Greg also grow mussels and kelp. Our third panelist here is Julie Chu. She's an international oyster sommelier and educator, creator of In a Half Shell, co-founder of the Oyster Master Guild, and she's been featured, gosh, all over the place, Vogue, USA Today, Chicago Tribune, NPR, Food and Wine, you name it. Patrick, I'd like to start with you, if you don't mind. How did you know that oysters were going to be in your life, or (laughs) at what time did you know that this was your calling? I grew up on the East Coast uh, of Virginia, so when I came back home to do an internship at an oyster hatchery, I figured I'd just do one on the water close to where I grew up. So then once I graduated from college, I worked at a larger hatchery, which some of you guys may know there's kind of a downtime where it doesn't really make sense to be spawning the oysters. At that point, that farm-to-table restaurant called Miroir was opening up, and I went over there to shuck oysters for just a few weeks in the downtime, and when I was getting ready to go back to my hatchery job, the Croxons were kind of tugging on my collar saying, hey, this is seeming like it's working. Do you want to stay and try to grow these oysters for us? And I've been with them now for about 12 years, so that's kind of uh, how it all started. That's awesome. I know you guys have several different oysters that you grow in different parts of the river, and there's some distinction there in flavor. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about those oysters, the location, and how those flavor profiles differ? Yeah, certainly. So when we first started, we were just farming oysters right outside of Miroir and just keeping it really simple by farming the oysters right out in front. But there would be people who would come to this restaurant from other parts and they would say, well, you know, we like our oysters really salty or everyone where they're from really has this tie to their oyster of why it's the best. And it's got this flavor that kind of reminds them of home. And we had some chefs and we had some people that really had passion about where their oysters came from. We kind of scratched our head. How are we ever going to be able to provide different flavor profiles? But it turns out the answer is fairly easy. If you just put an oyster in a different location, it's going to take on all those flavors of that different location. So we knew the most drastic difference in location would be to have an oyster grown on the ocean side. So we started a farm in Chincoteague, which is already a quintessential spot for an oyster. It has a good name to it, and, and rightfully so, because it's in an area that has a little bay right behind the ocean, which is totally different from growing in the Rappahannock River. So we knew by sticking an oyster there, that would present a different flavor profile. So we did that, and sure enough, for most of its life, it takes on all types of different profiles of flavor and aesthetics and different things that go along with that body of water. And then we did the same for other locations, just kind of in the middle bay area. So as you work your way out of the bay, you pick up on different flavors and different notes. And it's just been something that's kind of neat to be able to put those oysters side by side and from the same company and basically all started at the same location as well. Yeah, I love that. And I love talking to our guests about that. It kind of blows their mind when we talk about flavors of oysters and just the reason oysters taste the way they do. Weatherly, I got a couple questions for you. So you and your husband moved to Alaska in 2007. I think it's so great that not only are you all farming oysters, but you've got mussels and kelp. How did you guys get started? How did you know that this was what you were going to farm when you got to Alaska? Well, we grew up in Rhode Island. For me, my dad was a fisherman his whole life. He was a swordfish harpooner, a giant tuna fisherman, and like all these species were gone by the time I came along, and that profoundly impacted me. So I was kind of on a quest to become like a fisheries biologist. I started out at College of the Atlantic in Maine studying like ecology and then went to University of Rhode Island where I studied fisheries and aquaculture. Becoming so involved in fisheries made me realize like there's not that much I can do to stop overfishing because fisheries are so lobbyist driven. So I decided with my husband that we would become shellfish farmers. So we finished at the University of Rhode Island and then went up to Maine in the winter and landed a job at a hatchery. We ended up becoming the managers of the entire business. They had never brought a crop to market before, even though they'd been trying to farm for 10 years. Within a year, we were bringing almost half a million oysters to market. So we started there and we were doing well, but at the same time, Greg and I always had a passion to come out to Alaska. We just took a leap of faith and contacted oyster farmers. There were a few, but we found one in Kachemak Bay. A man had bought a farm, but he lived in Anchorage. So he hired us to start managing the farm. Today, we own that farm and we have 23 acres that we're farming. It's in one location in Helvet Cove. That's awesome. What a great story. I think you guys were meant to do this. <laughs> 
kind of curious for both of you in regards to seasonal changes and just climate in general, what you guys have experienced in the last few years. For me, the changes have been, I mean, I've definitely noticed we've had less of a freeze. I'm, I'm always on edge about the freeze because in Virginia, we're right on that line where it's not really cold. But if you're caught not watching things, then you can definitely kill a lot of oysters due to the freeze. So we have this big protocol in the fall to make sure we get all the oysters into deeper water. And it's a big move. I mean, we have to move at least half or maybe three quarters of our farm sometimes to deeper waters to avoid the freeze. But it's just seems like every year moving forward we move less and less oysters because we start to hedge our bets more and more that that freeze isn't gonna happen and then just the frequency of storms and maybe it's because i'm paying way more attention to them than i ever have in the past and the forecasting has gotten so much better for them weatherly what about you what are you guys seeing or experiencing in recent years with any kind of climate changes affecting your oysters We talk a lot about oysters being the canaries of the coal mine, and we've definitely been hit hard up here in Alaska by climate change in 2017 and 2018. There was the Pacific blob. It was a warm water mass in the Pacific Ocean, and that just led to catastrophic collapses in the food web. The algae For instance, we had paralytic shellfish poisoning that year for two years, and there was like mass starvation of seabirds. I mean, millions of seabirds died in Alaska because they had no food, and they linked that to the algae in the food web not being there and just like dominated by Alexandrium. And at that time, our whole entire mussel crop died for two years straight. We just watched as every mussel just perished and fell off the lines. You know, we just worry about the next time. Yeah, it sounds like we're just seeing extremes on all sides of the spectrum year to year. So better forecast some of these things and hopefully that helps you all prevent some loss there. Julie, I wanted to ask you a couple questions. First, I wanted to comment on your pocket-sized journal, 33 Oysters on the Half Shell. I just love this. I think it's so great for oyster lovers to be able to track their experiences. It's geeky and fun. And just being able to take note on like cup depth and meat-to-shell ratio, I, I just love it. I wanted to ask you, how would you describe or want to discuss the miroir between these two totally different oyster farms, different locations, obviously, but if you could just maybe dive in a little bit on that topic. Yeah, absolutely. So the term miroir has been circling around the oyster community for 20 plus years. So it was coined by late John Rowley and Greg Atkinson from Seattle. They're chefs and really passionate food lovers. And Greg wrote an article where he and John were riffing around this idea of oysters taking on a sense of place. So the term miroir is really lifted, inspired by the term terroir in wine culture, which really captures the soil and the essence of that environment kind of expressing itself in the wine. So for oysters, when we eat different types of oysters, I think this is one of my favorite things about them is that they can express different attributes based on where they're grown. And at Oyster Master Guild, we actually want to take that a step further by saying that miroir is really a unique intersection between nature, energy, and time. 
And so in that framework, you're able to express, look, there are things in the environment and even the species actually contributes to the flavor. But the producer, the farmer actually does such an enormous amount of work and based on the decisions that the producer chooses to do, has an impact on the texture and the overall quality of that oyster. And finally, the time is oysters are seasonal in a sense. And even though you can enjoy oysters year round now, we find that oysters taste better at different times of the year based on environmental conditions and temperature. So in the case of, I guess, comparing Glacier Points to Rappahannock River oysters, first of all, I would say they're two different species. So that really dictates kind of the baseline differences you'll find in each of the flavor profiles. The Magellanic Gigas, the Pacific oyster, has this really signature green and vegetal note to it. You taste immediate, maybe notes of cucumber, watermelon rind, some seagrass, lettuce, and has a high minerality content. Whereas the Chrysostrea virginica, the Eastern oyster, really also takes on more of a meaty, savory note, sometimes earthy, nutty, also a little bit of seagrass. But it doesn't really, when you compare them side by side, you will notice a distinct difference in the flavors and the aromas of the oyster. Again, we get a lot of our guests now more than ever really diving into the flavor of oysters and being able to discuss the differences between when they're enjoying oysters at our bar, an East Coast oyster, a West Coast oyster, or even really getting granular from farm to farm and talking about those little nuances that when you close your eyes and you chew on an oyster, you really can pick up those nuances of where they've spent time and all the effort behind that. So that was a great description. I have another question for the three of you. I just wanted to see what you guys thought of the dining culture and how that's changed or evolved around oysters. What do you see in the next few years? Well, it seems like oysters are becoming more popular, or I'm hoping they get back to the historical level of popularity. Awesome. How about you, Patrick? Yeah, just people's knowledge in general of farm-to-table product. I look at it as like kind of like the microbrewery industry. Like at first, if you just had a Bud Light or a Miller Light, you were happy with that and didn't think too much more into it. But now with all these smaller breweries, um, you really start to try to f- figure out why do I like that beer a little bit more? You know, where where did it come from? Who, who's doing this? You know, and that's the same thing that's happening with the oyster. So it, it really is just uh, people connecting to their food so much more. And the other thing, too, I, I just don't think you'll ever lose is just that, you know, it's still one of the only products that just comes straight out of the, the water and it's just a raw, live oyster, you know. So, like, for someone first eating that oyster to tell them that that oyster is still alive when you eat it, you know, or right before you just eat it, like, you just don't get that much anymore. Yeah, I can't agree more. Being in Colorado, we have definitely seen that educational side from our guests, the knowledge just grow after doing this for 30 years. It's really cool to see that evolution. Julie, do you have any thoughts on that? I have definitely seen a evolution in oyster culture and oyster appreciation, especially in North America, but also globally. We are just much more connected through social media, so it's also much easier to see the work that oyster farmers are doing and feel really connected to that type of food production and other types of food production. Education is an interesting one because in addition to wanting to accumulate the knowledge about where each of the oysters are from, I think people are also maybe expecting a slightly higher level of 
service and presentation, especially when it's at the raw bar. So for me, I suddenly realized back when I started writing about oysters, I was chasing varieties down, like almost like a, a scavenger hunt, if you will. But the more I got into it, the more I realized what's actually creating an amazing oyster experience isn't just the oyster itself, but it's the best oysters in the hands of the most knowledgeable people. And for them to be able to showcase the oyster, shock them cleanly, know how to tell that story, it's half the fun, really. Because oysters, especially raw oysters, I feel like is an incredibly high trust food. You have to put a, a significant amount of trust in the food system to be able to eat that animal live and raw, right? And when something goes wrong, you immediately see it in, in the newspapers, like sensationalizing, you just don't want to eat oysters anymore. So I think it's really important for people to know their oysters, but also trust good oyster stewards. I love that. Well, I can't thank you all enough for taking the time out of your day. I know you're all really, really busy, and it means a lot to us that you, you all share a little bit of what you do and your expertise for all of us oyster lovers. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We'll continue our conversation with Julie in just a moment. Stay tuned for the second half of the conversation with Chef Sheila and Julie. But first, in celebration of Jack's 30th anniversary, we asked a few of our longtime friends and special guests to pipe in and give some thoughts on Jack's. I tried to calculate this morning how many times I've eaten at Jack's. I think it's about 600. I think of Jack's as my refrigerator, if you will. For years, our code word at the house was kumis. Kate and I would call our friends Dave and Linda and go to Jack's for a fix of Kumamoto oysters, which, of course, are best accompanied by some bubbles. I'm known as Last Minute Dan, LMD, and I'm the guy that calls Jack's on a Friday at 5.30 for seats for my wife and I. He told me he'll do it for another 20 years, and then I have to figure out how to make reservations ahead of time. Uh, I worked there 19 years waiting on customers, watching them form relationships, first dates, um, all the way to kids. <laughs> you know, they, uh, they came in with their kids from that person that they had their first date at Jack's with. It, people were drawn to it because it felt comfortable, felt safe, but it also felt like it was something new. I think about eating more oysters at a single sitting than I ever have in my entire life. Fortunately, I was smart enough mid-eat to kind of slow up and stop, and thus preserving my enjoyment of, of oysters here into the future. I have only two grandchildren, and they are four and six. And we were there eating outside. The two little kids said, as we were ordering food, we'd like to try oysters. So we ordered enough oysters, we thought, for them and us. And it turned out we did not order enough oysters because the two of them ate two dozen oysters. Forrest, the little boy, would take his oyster and he'd take a little mignonette and put a little of that on it and then he'd slurp it down. And then, having watched us eat oysters, turned the shell upside down and went on to the next one. And pretty soon, Juniper, his younger sister, was doing the same. To watch your grandchildren eat oysters. There's nothing that ever has made me happier. So that was our Boulder friends Larry Gold and A.J. Grant, man about town Dan Sawyer, longtime Jack server Kathleen Doyle Murphy, former Jack's GM Greg Yoshida, and OG Boulder farmer Chet Anderson. 
We are back with Julie Chu. Could you just give us a little bit of background on how you discovered your passion for oysters? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So the more I started learning about oysters, the more I realized like it's just an amazing food and there's so much rich history and culture behind it. And yet when you go to an oyster bar, a lot of those stories were not being told. So I took it upon myself through In a Half Shell to really showcase exceptional oyster products, people, and places. And that was the initial mission. So you met Patrick McMurray, and you guys obviously share a passion for oysters. How did you guys get the Oyster Master Guild going? He and I met at the Galway International Shellfish Festival 10 years ago in 2014. And I think we both just share this rich passion and enthusiasm for making sure that the oyster story is told as well as it can be, because it takes so much time, blood, sweat, and tears to produce the oysters that we enjoy and often take for granted. It takes four to five years to grow one, and then four minutes to shuck a plate, and then four seconds to eat an oyster. What is that all for? And I think Oyster Master Guild is really trying to first create a community around oyster appreciation and stewardship. And secondly, build a formal education pathway so that anybody can become a oyster expert or oyster sommelier or a certified oyster shucker. They would be able to and find the resources to help them do that. So we launched Oyster Master Guilds with our level one oyster appreciation fundamentals course. Ultimately, we got 106 students from over 11 countries, which is really, really shocking and surprising to us, to our delight. We just launched level two advanced oyster appreciation, where we're taking a good cohort of the level one graduates through the secondary program. And ultimately, it's going to be a four level program with level three and four really focused on the professional audience. I look forward to taking those classes. How did you guys even decide on the curriculum? Like, it just, I think that's so cool. Oyster appreciation on In a Half Shell, and also through my master classes, I have taught an introductory overview of all the things that you need to know in order to feel confident about enjoying and giving great oyster experiences. I wanted to make it very accessible for consumers to just feel like they can get a little bit of expertise in this subject without feeling overwhelmed. Meanwhile, on Patrick's side, he's coming in from the restaurant perspective. He's run various oyster bars in Toronto and currently teaches at a culinary school. So from his point of view, he wanted to also express all the things that you need to take into consideration when you want to have a really great raw bar program. So that's really the basis of how we came to the four different levels, half of them being dedicated to more enthusiasts and then half of them for professionals. Within our level one course, there's six modules. And I think it kind of just covers Oyster 101 to how to shuck different ways, how to troubleshoot oysters that are might be tricky to shuck, tasting oysters, how oyster farming works from a very basic level. And then going into level two, we really dig deep into the individual species that are available in North America. So three of our seven modules in that course is dedicated just deep dive into species. What do you see as the growth for the Oyster Master Guild in the next few years? Well, our ambition is to create a global network for oyster appreciation and help 
create some global oyster service standards with our friends across the pond. So we do have friends who do oyster education in Europe, in Australia, in Asia, and love to make a community where people can go into Oyster Master Guild, become a member, and network, and exchange ideas around the world. My dream will be to be able to walk into any restaurant or bar that hires certified OMG professionals and have an amazingly perfect plate of well-shucked oysters and the knowledge that goes with it. I love those goals. So I have one last question, your oyster bucket list. What's the next one you're crossing off? Oh gosh, I have a long one. It's, <laughs> I have a long bucket list on my website. But I guess I would say that New Zealand and Australia have really been at the top of my priority list. I only have gotten a chance to visit one farm in Tasmania for one day, and that's certainly not enough. So that's probably up there. And also, I would love to explore more of France. I had a chance to visit uh, Marine Odoron uh, last summer, and that's where they do the affinage, the finishing of oysters in their, their clairs. And I would love to see the other aspects of, of production in France. Stuff to look forward to, that's for sure. Thank you so much, Julie. It's been awesome to chat with you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Likewise, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Sheila and her oyster buddies. And we thank you so much for joining us at the community table. Recently, we opened a groovy little music joint called the Velvet Elk Lounge in Boulder. If you haven't yet been, please make plans to join us soon. You can find out all the things that are happening at velvetelklounge.com. Hey everybody, my name is Tom LaFond, and I'm letting you know I have a show March 8th at the Velvet Elk Lounge. It's the album release party for my new album, Lawless. Fruta Brutal is opening the show, and I hope to see you there. Stand beside me Love like that is blind I'm here if I thought I understood What the highest